Many adults may not be aware that simply being over 50 puts them at increased risk for shingles. Help prevent shingles in patients over 50 with Shingrix. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster HZ or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult the product monograph at gsk.ca slash Shingrix slash PM for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. Alex Chung here, host of the MD Market Watch podcast. A large part of helping Canadian physicians and their families achieve their financial goals is prudent investment strategy and portfolio management. Want the latest information about current market events and developments, MD fund and portfolio updates, and where we think things are headed? Our expert contributors break it down and give you all the details that you'll need. Listen to the MD Market Watch podcast on md.ca or through your favorite podcast provider. The COVID-19 pandemic has been going on for months with no clear indication of when it will be over. It's taking a toll on many people's mental health in the same way that natural disasters or wars have caused psychological distress. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for CMHA. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Claire Payne and Dr. Ruth Lanius. They co-authored an article entitled Disasters, Pandemics, and Mental Health. They've joined me to discuss their article, which is published in CMAJ. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Dorian. It's great to be here. Now, as a psychiatrist, I know you both through your extensive work in the field of trauma, but I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and how you got interested in trauma as an area of formal study. Ruth, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh... I'm a clinician scientist working uh, with trauma-related disorders, and I'm particularly interested in understanding what happens in the brain and how these brain functions also have an effect on the body and the physiology in the body. And the way we approach the study of traumatic stress is really starting with the patient's first-person experience and really try to correlate that with what we see in brain, mind, and body. And I'm also very passionate about treating, especially individuals who have experienced chronic traumatization in childhood, but also first responders and military members. And Claire? I got interested uh, in trauma really by mistake, by being the, the, the only female uh, psychiatrist in an outpatient department. But started to get very interested in traumatic sequela and i've enjoyed certainly working with ruth i learned a great deal about the combination of brain and first person experience and i also enjoy working with refugees people who've come here and also working in disaster areas in africa yeah, I know, I know of your work in Africa. That was in Ethiopia, if I remember correctly? Yes, yes. We run a big project between the University of Toronto and Addis Ababa University, which has been going on now for nearly 20 years. Okay, and I, I think that your, some of your experience with trauma goes back to um, the civil war in Ethiopia. Yes, in the 70s I was there in the revolution, yes. So given your background, and now that our listeners understand where you're coming from, why don't we start to talk about your viewpoints? What do we know about how disasters or public health emergencies affect population rates of psychological distress? During a prolonged disaster or emergency, public health emergency, it seems that levels of distress are high. Some of the studies I was looking at 
a CAMH survey done very recently in Toronto during May uh, noticed that uh, moderately severe anxiety levels were at 25%. Uh, 23% of people felt lonely um, and 20% felt depressed either occasionally or most of the time. Um, certainly during SARS, the estimates are, are more variable between 18 and 57%. So they're high. Um, one could perhaps question what mild anxiety would mean if it's not associated with any change in function. So I don't want to imply that these are diseases. This is just distress. And it seems to go down within the first 12 to 14 months fairly spontaneously after the situation resolves. And what does resolution look like? Like, is it a return to a normal, or is it um, like, have you seen any patterns when you've looked at wars? I mean, a, a country might be completely changed, reorganized. Uh, so, what a person experienced as normal before an event actually might not even be the same thing that was there um, after the event. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think it's so variable. Our normal post-COVID is not going to look like our normal pre-COVID. And certainly if you're in a war situation and you've had to move everything, everything you could pick up in your hands and cross international boundaries or migrate to an entirely different part of the country, it's a very different kind of new normal. But on the whole, people do adapt to what they call a new normal. And most people uh, have no symptoms and no disorders that's not to say everybody, but the vast majority of people, their distress slowly returns to the same level of distress as in the normal population. That's really interesting from the point of view of adaptation and something that Ruth was mentioning about the brain and, and how, how we adapt. I mean, is the increased distress a non-specific factor related to change? Or what, Ruth, have you figured out what's going on with the, with the brain? When, when we have public health emergencies? Yeah, I think we're still in the early stages and we're going to need a lot of longitudinal studies to really examine this. And I would imagine it's going to be different in different parts of the world. For example, Claire was bringing up the uh, rates of distress as published by CAMH. If you compare that to the Chinese rates that they have published, they're much higher. For example, they see 75% of stress-related symptoms 50% individuals suffering from depression, you know, 40% suffering from anxiety. So I think it's going to be very dependent on, you know, what country you look at about, you know, very dependent on the situation in each specific country. But we do know, as Claire said, that after an acute uh, traumatic event, and this is, of course, more prolonged, you know, most people are going to have some level of distress and for a significant number of people, that's going to decrease over the next year. And uh, we would hypothesize that this is probably very much related to emotional centers in the brain settling down. And we've seen that in neuroimaging studies, for example, the amygdala seems to settle down as the distress settles down. The prefrontal cortex that's able to regulate emotions becomes more active and is able to regulate those lower brain centers that generate those raw affective responses. And I think this occurs in most people, but I think we do have to be aware that there are gonna be a certain number of people who will be affected more 
in the long term. And I think it'll be critical to target those people and really support them adequately. So coming back to this question of adaptation to something that, that's temporary, but what happens to people who have been in a long-standing emergency, like a war or conflict that just keeps on going, or perhaps if, if, if the COVID pandemic just keeps on going, is there some kind of, I'm not looking for a hard and fast number, but is there sort of a, an amount of time that a person can tolerate the acute stress and, and readapt, and then where, where it sort of bridges over and it becomes more prolonged, more damaging perhaps? I think what you're speaking to is a threshold, right, Dorian? And I think we all have certain thresholds. And if we reach a th certain threshold of chronic inescapable stress, which a pandemic really is, once an individual reaches their personal threshold, then I think their chances of becoming ill are much higher. And where the individual threshold is, I think really depends on the person's past experience, for example, have they had, you know, past psychiatric difficulties? What is their level of past and current social support? Um, have they turned to alcohol or drugs? And so I think all those things we have to monitor, and these are the things that really determine the thresholds when they become sick. The whole idea of thresholds in mental medicine is just massive. I mean, whether we're talking about the difference between normal and pathological, right? Ultimately, this is one of the big categories, but, but a threshold. So how do you know if you've crossed the line um, and with, with this threshold between what's normal adaptation and, and suddenly you've crossed a threshold to abnormal? I think the military has done a very good job in their program, The Road to Mental Readiness, where they've really uh, pointed out four stages of where an individual can be at. So a healthy stage, a stage when you're st just starting to become a little bit symptomatic, then when those symptoms become worse, and the fourth stage is really the red stage when you've become ill. And so I think that's a very good way to monitor where, you're, where you are in terms of functioning and symptoms. You know, are you sleeping well? Is your mood good? Are you able to interact with others well? You know, that would really determine whether it would really suggest that you're healthy. And then as you start to become more symptomatic, you know, people experience problems sleeping. That's often, you know, one of the first signs. They may increase their substance use, for example, alcohol use slightly. They may become more irritable in relationships, but still function well. So that would be you know, the first stage to reaching that threshold. And then all those things would progress to the point where you really feel ill and your functioning is impaired. And I think that's a very good way for all of us to monitor where we're at. So very much in terms of your personal baseline and not necessarily a standardized set of uh, a, ch a checklist of symptoms. Yes, absolutely. It's personalized and it has some standard uh, symptoms as well that you can follow. Yeah. One of the things that I mean, I certainly notice among my colleagues and people talk about is, is drinking and other substances. Can you talk to that and what happens in public health emergencies and substance use? In many studies, it does seem to increase during the period of the emergency. Although studies do vary, but it's not clear that it's permanently raised. I think there are other things these days that people have less data on, like vaping 
video or screen addictions or overuse anyway. Um, and I think that there are a bunch of things that go along with perhaps substance misuse that are less obvious, although I think we've developed a, a better sensitivity towards domestic violence, um, accidents in the home, the experience of children witnessing violence between their parents. These kind of bunch of things tend to cluster together, although the data isn't great at the moment. How long does it take usually in, in other emergencies, how long has it taken to come back to that baseline, whether it's uh, sleep or whether it's functioning, mood, drinking? Can you draw any parallels to other studies, other situations? I'd like to just echo what Ruth said, um, that sleep insufficiency, problem drinking and poor social support associated with severe levels of psychological distress and long-lasting psychological issues. So sometimes as easy as thinking about a diagnosis and when a diagnosis will resolve, people start to use a bunch of different behaviors to cope and some of them really take on a life of their own. Yeah, when do people come back to more normal substance use? I think, you know, that's a million dollar question, Dorian. And I think we'll have to really look at longitudinal studies to uh, see that. I'm not aware of a lot of studies that have looked uh, at that after disasters. But I think uh, I want to speak to what Claire brought up again, that, you know, alcohol use is one problem and other substances is... uh, also needs to be thought about. And I think the data are showing now that alcohol purchase has increased by 20 to 30%, for example, and that cannabis purchase has increased by up to 150%. But also, you know, really thinking about, uh, you know, how much are people in front of the computer screen as a way to zone out? uh, Or, you know, are they engaging in screen pornography? All those things I think we need to think about as well when we think about addiction. Hmm. Now, this sort of brings us to the next part of what I wanted to ask you. And the Five Things articles are really meant to be practical. They're meant to say, to say okay, if you're working in the clinic and, and you see somebody who you think might be in distress, what can you do? What can you do, uh, first of all, to identify that person and and, and and find out a little bit more, but also what can you do to help? To identify who might be at risk, that's one thing. Just taking a patient and uh, not knowing where they're at, I guess obvious things are just checking in on what their levels of anxiety and depression are, how they feel. As far as risk factors, um, we know that pre-existing psychiatric disorder is an important risk factor. In fact, in emergencies, just as physical health disorders can get sidelined, so can severe mental illness get undertreated in emergencies. But So that's an important component. Isolation, we hear all the time, the absolute protective factor of social contact and social connectedness. And similarly, social isolation promotes and precipitates mental distress and perhaps mental illness. So how have you been finding um, virtual care as a form of connecting with patients? 
Yeah, in terms of virtual treatments, I think uh, it's very interesting and we're gaining more and more data, of course, as we're doing this more. And I think, you know, we have a heterogeneous uh, response. Some people find that it increases their level of disconnection. And, you know, you certainly have certain patients telling you that. Patients who say that they're much more comfortable in their own home, sitting on their own couch, and really having the safety of their own home. And what I've found, especially with my patients who are very traumatized and have really chronic childhood maltreatment by some of their closest caregivers, they've told me that they feel much safer with this video contact. And what I've noticed actually with those individuals is that I've been able to do some really deep work. And when we discuss they'll tell me it's because, you know, it's virtual. And so they have a bit of distance. And so I think it's going to be very interesting to see more and more of those data coming out. And I think we're going to see a very heterogeneous response. With uh, people who have had chronically complicated lives full of trauma or neglect, I've been quite unnerved by how often what I've experienced, what I've thought would be a private space, to talk in has not been private. That there's um, a, a husband or a spouse sitting on the just out of sight couch, listening to everything. Um, I had one patient where the, she was actually using her cell phone and it was quite wiggly. And I asked if she could possibly just lean it against something. And she said her son was holding it. So I think uh, one of my anxieties is Privacy is a lot more difficult to somehow ensure. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Claire, and it gives us really a better view of what the home situation is really like. I have a number of patients, for example, who uh, call me from the car, and that's where they have their appointments. So it really gives us a wider view of uh, what's happening in the home. Great tip, actually, um, to ask people who have privacy issues to go to the car if they have a car or, or be at least ask where they are and be a hundred percent sure that they're safe and able to talk. Now talking to patients in the clinic, I have also noticed that people tell me they're reflecting a lot more on things that have happened in the past. And it seems that where, whereas I guess when, when society was functioning as, as it was before, people could become distracted, but now, when a person is locked down or isolated, it seems to me uh, they have more time to keep going over and over the same traumas, the same past issues. Have you noticed that? Have either of you noticed that in your practice? Yes, I think there's more time. And often what we find is, as you just said, Doreen, is that people you know, often get preoccupied with you know, just doing their thing and going out repeatedly and they can suppress you know, what's happening inside in the past. And that's yeah, exactly less possible, really allows those thoughts and feelings to emerge. But I think there's also a second factor that's feeding into this. And I think it's related to the fact that this pandemic, I think, has really made a lot of us feel very helpless, right? And there's also a great sense of unpredictability surrounding this pandemic. And I think often this sense of helplessness and the sense of unpredictability can really trigger past feelings of helplessness 
and unpredictability, which is really the core of childhood maltreatment. And so people with this experience, I think, are often triggered because of those current feelings of helplessness and unpredictability into feeling those past feelings. So what are you suggesting that people do when they're, if they're feeling more triggered than, uh, because of the circumstances? What, what can a person do and what can a doctor suggest that they do to help themselves uh, strengthen? What I've really uh, talked to my patients about is that a time of crisis is an amazing time to intervene because we're human and we don't like change. But in a crisis, we're sometimes forced into change. And so how can we use this time of crisis to really make some changes that have been difficult for us to achieve in therapy? And I think that that has really resonated with a lot of my patients and, you know, they've taken this time very seriously. They have more time. You know, those affects, those feelings and those negative thoughts are right there. And so we've been able to work with them and actually change them and make them feel like they have a sense of mastery, a sense of agency in the present and to really use this time wisely. I think what Ruth says is right. I suppose um, insofar as we are all seeing a bunch of, a fairly random sample of people. Initially, when, when it was all very new and none of us knew what to expect, I agree with, with the people who were having the hardest trouble were people who'd been abused as children and they felt, in quotes, a lack of control. So the whole kind of pause without knowing what was happening um, was making them feel trapped. And I think that was recreating the same experiences they had when they were children. To a large extent, that seems to have dissipated. And I think paradoxically, the experience of isolation in some of my patients suits them too well. And they laugh. I mean, they, they know that I spend half my time trying to get them out and engaging in the world. And actually, sometimes they're aware that they prefer not to. And there's a sort of amusing paradox in that. I wanted to turn the conversation a little bit uh, toward doctors themselves and how healthcare providers can safeguard their own mental health during this time. The three things that spring to my mind are um, the essential requirement for safety. Thinking about PPE, um, but also thinking about the safety at home as well as work. And the, but there have been some, a, a number of things within hospitals that seem to have been helpful. There's this buddy system idea where somebody, uh, people sort of pair off, not as friends, but people just check on each other and keep an eye on each other, which seems to have been very popular and acted against the kind of isolation that, that we've all been experiencing within a work environment. And the third thing, I guess, this social connectedness, um, especially in the form of teamwork, really can address the uh, sort of psychological needs for friendship and esteem. And I guess we've discovered it's absolutely not a luxury, but uh, social connectedness is a sort of requirement, it's a basic human necessity that's built into our biology, this need to belong. And I think good leadership really helps people feel like they belong and that they're part of uh, a team trying to work together to, 
to help everybody. I agree with Claire that, you know, this social support is absolutely critical. And I think one thing when we think about healthcare workers, we've really uh, learned from this pandemic is the concept of moral injury that is so important. And I think that's going to be the crux of this pandemic. Moral injury can really be thought of in two ways. You know, one is if you witness or if you're involved in an event that really violates your deep moral beliefs. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we were extremely afraid that, you know, this was, would be even more pronounced than it actually ended up being, thank God. But all we knew was Italy, right? And we knew that uh, people had to choose who gets a ventilator. And these choices are absolutely brutal. And, you know, throughout this pandemic, what our healthcare workers have faced, I think, is really witnessing people with COVID die alone, which has been terribly difficult for them. This can really induce a lot of guilt and shame that can really perpetuate symptoms of PTSD, symptoms of depression, uh, suicidality, and anxiety. And the other way uh, moral injury, I think, can affect an individual is it can involve a deep sense of betrayal when an organization fails to protect its people. And at the beginning of the pandemic, when we had very low personal protective equipment, I think a lot of the healthcare workers felt like they were thrown to the wolves. Those two things we've really learned from this pandemic. And I think uh, it has turned out much better than originally anticipated. It's something we need to keep monitoring both in the clinic, but also as leaders in leadership positions, I think it'll be absolutely critical to monitor people in this regard. One of the points you made in, in your article was about misinformation. What did you mean by misinformation contributing to distress? Um, when pandemic or general emergencies arise, there's such a rapid, especially these days, there's such a rapid generation of information as well as misinformation uh, in, in sort of early times of uncertainty, it's very challenging to decipher what information is actually credible. So I think that given the kind of fear that a population might experience of, of a huge infectious illness like, um, like we're going through with a large number of people affected, when you have misinformation, it just feeds into a kind of fear and public panic um, it certainly affects, as we've seen, the financial markets, this lack of credible information or uncertainty about information. People have been very stigmatized and uh, discriminated against with this idea of it being a Chinese infection. So I think it can lead to some terrible things like that. Bogus cures we've seen have been dangerous. And I think there are also ideas that... Um, the rates in America are being, I've been reading about that, that there are these conspiracy theorists that believe that they're all um, kind of engineered and not, not actually reflective of what's happening. So I think that it is hard to know what's reliable information, but it, it's worth figuring that out. I just want to add uh, in terms of uh, thinking about an organizational level, I think misinformation at that level can also really raise the sense of betrayal. And I think we experienced this early on in the pandemic when people were told by the organization, you know, there's this much PPE, but then they realized, you know, that wasn't true. And I think that really uh, 
increased their sense of betrayal and uh, contributed to uh, this moral injury phenomenon that we're seeing. Ruth, turn me on to this moral injury phenomena that sort of was in the military prior to, to the articles coming out of Italy. But it seems to me a very important piece of what this, as you're saying, this betrayal by people who are uh, leaders in our systems, you wonder how much of that is in fact moral injury and not PTSD. The outrage, the anger, the hurt, the kind of emotions that are stimulated by that kind of experience, feeling helpless, feeling that no one's really taking proper account of what's happening. I, I really do wonder how much we model PTSD with moral injury these days. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Claire. And I had a really transformative uh, moment uh, during my career years ago when I interviewed a Vietnam veteran. And I think he so eloquently expressed the concept of moral injury. And he said to me, you know, Ruth, I cannot look anyone in the eye for fear that they will see the stain on my soul. And I thought, wow, we've really missed a lot of the inner experience of these veterans. And that really made me, you know, think much more about moral injury, not just in the veteran population, but also in other populations and especially in this pandemic. What you're saying reminds me of something Marx wrote in the mid-19th century, that, that his famous quote that everything that was solid has turned to air. And that was a time of great societal disruption and revolution. I, you know, I mean, I, I have no idea if this is an appropriate thing to record, but I do think this pandemic is a nuisance and it's tough on many, many, many people. But I'm not sure that we can conflate it with, you know, the terrible things that are happening in Syria or the Yemen or, you know, like I, I worry a bit about how all public health emergencies become disasters and all disasters become the worst thing in the world. So I, I'm not sure, Dorian. I feel like we inadvertently inflate uh, or fragilize ourselves when we think that what we're going through now is comparable to mass rapes and mass killings that many parts of the world. I do worry about that a bit. You know, I've heard that said by other people, and it's a, it's a difficult issue, and we only have a certain types of words. We haven't evolved, as, I guess, a language as subtle enough because these events don't happen very often. Yeah. But I think it's a very interesting perspective, and I think it helps us to put our present perspective into, you know, the whole world perspective to really, you know, help us calm our own distress as well, Right to compare some of the other atrocities that are going on and then really ask us, aren't we lucky in many ways? And I think, you know, if we think about the social support we've talked about, how important that is, and sort of to end on a note of hope, I think we know one thing that this pandemic is going to end. We don't know when, but we know it's going to end. And I think you know, working together, using all the social support that we can, we can, and we will get through it. I, I love that. You know, one of the things when writing this piece, which was kind of fascinating, was, you know, what are our levels of distress in a pandemic? And what, are, what about mental health, mental distress, mental illness 
in real war situations. There's an extremely good recent article in The Lancet of the WHO prevalence of estimates of mental disorder in conflict. And, you know, it's surprisingly low. This is what you're right. You're so right about language. I mean, the prevalence of mental illness in real chronic conflict situations was 22%. And, I mean, Ruth, you would know better than all of us in the general population, the kinds of incidents of distress are between 20 and 30% in the general population. Mental illness, you know, whatever that quite means, is maybe 15%. So it's very interesting you, when you look at the kinds of similarities between prevalence rates in a non-war situation than in a war situation. It's, it's surprisingly... I think we're right. I think we need a better language to differentiate severe from mild to make sure we have function gathered in there and not just surveys of people who feel miserable. Yeah, and also not to pathologize it, right? This is a difficult situation and we're going to suffer, right, as a result of it. And is that illness versus normal suffering, which is extremely painful? I think that's a very important question. Perhaps a great way to sort of round out this, this discussion around, you know, bringing us back to what is part of being human and, and responding, what, what can we expect as the normal course of life, whatever normal is, rather than what's then focus on pathological categories and, and labeling. It's been very helpful for me to talk to the two of you today uh, about the complexities of the area of trauma and how it impacts on individuals and on society. So Claire and Ruth, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dorian. It was a pleasure being part of this conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Claire Payne and Dr. Ruth Lanius. To read the article they co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or Podcast App. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.